Good morning, folks. We have a packed service for you this morning. We have the Melvins leading worship for us. We have an update from the mission field with Asia Link. We have the Impossible Quiz. And we also have the penultimate part of our series in discovering what God's will is for your life. Before we do that, though, I want to just update you, uh, church, uh, with some of the decisions the elders and deacons have made this week regarding meeting together as a church. On Tuesday, we met together to talk through all the variables and we can only deal with the information that we have, the things that we know for certain and the guidelines set out by the NI executive. Our desire as a leadership is to care for the flock. That's first and foremost for us. And by that, we are obliged to prioritise the safety of everyone who attends and volunteers here at AEC. We also have a responsibility to preach the gospel clearly and concisely. And we don't want to have a form of meeting that is so restricted by safety measures that it's of no spiritual benefit to anyone. And so with that in mind, we have made the following decisions. Each one made subject to the will of God and also the medical guidance of the authorities of our land. The plan for us as a church is to continue in this current YouTube format over the summer. Though in line with current guidelines, could I suggest that even if you, if it's safe for you and reasonable for you to do so, why not watch the video in, with someone else in your house or, uh, within the guidelines, within the parameters of what is permitted for you if your um, health is restrictive, what is safe and right for you to do so, why not join together for a bit of fellowship if it's another couple or another family, depending on the size, why not meet together and uh, have fellowship um, as a small uh, as a small house church uh, if you can do that in that bubble. So please be responsible in that uh, and uh, don't be uh, sort of going around you know, 20 different houses uh, watching the service every time. Uh, that That's not what this is about. Uh, stick to the same bubble as best as you can, Sunday by Sunday. Be responsible. In August, the plan is that we'll start having weekly prayer meetings in the church. They will run on Wednesday nights, not Thursdays. They will run on Wednesday nights from 8 o'clock in the evening. They are, by their nature, smaller services. It allows us as leaders to start phasing the building back into use while also providing an opportunity for face-to-face -face fellowship. Then, from the first Sunday in September, we will begin Sunday morning worship services. The services will be shorter, will not have communion at this point. Singing is more likely to be performance-based from the pulpit rather than congregational. And the sermon is going to be family-friendly for the children involved, uh, as creche and Bible classes won't be operational in the initial stages of reopening. We do understand and appreciate that there are other churches who are opening quicker than we are. There are some opening this weekend. So be it. Uh, I pray it works out for them and I pray that it looks like we have been overly cautious. I hope it looks like we were the ones who were worried about nothing. That's the definition of success in a health crisis. So to those who are eager to get back into the building, I, I hope this gives you hope. It sets a time frame. In a few weeks, our prayer meetings will be off Zoom and in person. For those who are still anxious and concerned about the pace of the return, and I know there are quite a few, I pray that this offers comfort and assurance that we are being careful. We are not going to rush back. We are not going to put people at risk if we can avoid it. We are human. We may make mistakes along the way. We're not perfect. 
the only thing that we can promise is that we will learn quickly. Uh, and hopefully the smaller numbers on the prayer meeting will help us just refine uh, our technique, refine some of the procedures in place. And it gives us a few weeks as well to watch what other people are doing and learn from them as well. And we want to begin really ultimately serving God in the midst of our community as effectively as we can, as soon as we can. If you have questions about anything that we've said or if you would like to offer your help, please reach out to the elders and the deacons and uh, we'll love to put you to work if we can in, in some way. But let's pray and we'll go into our first song. Father, uh, our church is has muddled through as best as it can uh, in, in a world that seems to have been turned upside down and inside out so quickly. We have struggled to catch our breath initially and then as we got into a routine we have fought frustration and cabin fever and boredom and homeschooling as best as we can. Father, as we turn to you again this morning to lead us, to guide us, we look to you, Lord, to be our anchor, to be our comfort, to be our shield. You know the condition of our hearts, our thoughts, our anxieties that are present. And yet, as David said, try me, know my heart, Lord. See if there be something in my heart that is wicked and lead me in the paths of righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would use this service to bring us in line with your will. So, Lord, speak to us. Then work through us for your glory. That people in our homes and our workplaces and who see us day by day would see something of the hope that is within us even in these strange times. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Over to you, John Melvin. Since they are made. 
every day thousands of Christians around the world face persecution for following Jesus. They are forced to live in poverty or to flee their homes. They can be thrown into prison for their faith. They can be brutally tortured and even killed. But just like Jesus, they have only one weapon to fight back with. Love. One Sunday morning, a group of Buddhist monks and local people interrupted our church service. They started throwing chairs around and tearing up our Bibles. I tried to reason with them, and in the end, I kneeled in the front of the altar, praying, Lord, take this situation into your hands. At this time, one of them hit me on the head with a guitar, and I fell on the ground. My boys saw this and they were terrified. A few weeks later, they burned down my church and threatened me and my family, asking us to leave the village. I have forgiven the monks and the villagers who caused so much trouble and pain to us. I know they are still angry with me, but I pray for them. My wife and I have chosen to stay here, to continue to preach the gospel, and disciple new Christians. One night I woke up to feed my little boy and I saw smoke coming out of the church. Some local people had set fire to the church. I got very scared. I called my husband and we tried to put the fire out. But everything was destroyed. Chairs, the speakers, the Bibles, everything. My husband and I were unable to sleep for three months after this event because we were scared for the safety of our children. We prayed and asked for God's protection on our children and other Christians in the village. We have been through a lot, but I believe that God has brought us this far and He will not forsake us. God has a purpose for our lives and we will continue to love and serve in His name. So. Now is the time that we've all been waiting for. It's the impossible quiz. Hey, woo, yeah. No, it is impossible, okay? So, uh, well, regardless of how old you are, it is going to be too hard. I promise you this, okay? So just, there's only four or five questions, but I promise you that you'll maybe get the first one. You'll probably not get any of the rest. So work together as a family, work together as a team and see how far you get. Okay, so here's the first question. First question is, name the winners of the last three FIFA World Cups. So I know there's some of you that are really into your football. Can you name the last three winners? So that would be uh, 2018, 2014, 
and 2010. Who were the last three winners? Okay, so here come the answers. Uh, the winners were in 2018, it was France that won it, of course, and then it was Germany, and then it was Spain. Okay, that was the easy one. How did you do? Maybe it was a wee bit hard. Okay, here's the next one. Now it goes up a jump. What about the three wealthiest people in the world? Who are the richest people in the world? And it's not David Rutherford, and it's not, hmm, who could it be? Well, have you got them? Have you got them in order? <laughs> well, according to the internet today, uh, the richest people in the world is uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, who owns Amazon, and then it's Bill Gates, and then it is Bernard Arnault. Uh, he runs a lot of uh, high-end boutiques, uh, Louis Vuitton, uh, Dior, Marc Jacobs. He owns all those companies, and so uh, he is the third wealthiest person in the world. He's got about 90 billion. Bill Gates is 99 billion, and Jeff Bezos has uh, over 100 billion to his name. Not bad going. Okay, question number three. The three previous Nobel Peace Prize winners won the most famous prizes, one of the most famous uh, awards that you could be given. Surely everyone would know who's won the Nobel Peace Prize. I'll be honest, I haven't heard of any of these people, but here they are. The winners this year was Abe Hamed, and then uh, last year, or sorry, uh, Abe came in 2019, in 2018, Dennis McQuiggy, and then uh, the year before, 2017, says 2017, is Nadia Murad. I haven't heard of these people, but they're the Nobel Peace Prize winners. So, how are you getting on? How many have you got right so far? <laughs> Told you it was the impossible quiz. I told you it was going to be impossible. Okay. Uh, what about question four then? What about the previous winners of the last three Miss World competitions? The most beautiful woman in the entire world. Surely their names would be famous. Surely we would know exactly who they are. All that time and effort and preparation that they've put in, surely they're all household names. Mm, let's see how you get on. Well, the winners haven't come out this year, but the, uh, the most recent winner is Tony Ann Singh of Jamaica. Then there was Vanessa Ponce of Mexico. And um, was it Mexico, actually, should I say? Um, can't remember. Yes, it was uh, Tony Ann from uh, Jamaica, Vanessa Ponce from Mexico, and Manushi Chiller from India. Uh, and then the year before that, it was Ruth Kennedy from Northern Ireland. So that's that's brilliant points in the bag. Then, uh, what about our last question then, okay? This is your last chance to get some marks, uh, to be top of the class. So let's see how you've got on. What about the last three movies that have won an Oscar for Best Picture? Now, I love my movies. I know a lot of you in the church love your movies. So this should be an easy one, okay? What were the best movies made of the last couple of years? Hmm, think back. I'm sure you probably could get last year's. But what happened in the year before? Hmm, all that money, 
all that time spent critiquing and watching and viewing, what were the last three movies to win Best Picture at the Oscars? Well, the most recent winner was Parasite, and then Green Book, and The Shape of Water. Now, that's an impossible quiz. And yet, here we are, and we're looking at the most famous things in sport, the most famous things uh, in terms of money, or uh, brain power, and intellect, or beauty, or fame. And you think of all the money and energy and resources that is put in by these football teams and these men uh, who, who are making money, the, the, these ladies who, who are fighting so hard to be awarded the, the winner of the most beautiful woman in the world, or, or, or these uh, people who are fighting to, to make a difference in the world, or, or to make a movie that, that's going to wow people. We can barely remember who runs, owns the title, and we definitely don't remember who won last time. Well, the one per the time before that, and it got me thinking about the Bible because we're told, look, a lot of these things don't last. People forget. People are always moving on to the next thing, and we spend all this time trying to to achieve something, and then when we finally do it, people will go, "Oh wow, that was cool," and then they move on. And it makes you wonder, well, what are we really living for? If we're going to put so much time and effort into something, wouldn't it be better to have something that lasts? And so the Bible tells us in Colossians, look, don't go running after something like money that isn't going to really last. Don't chase after trying to be famous because people aren't going to remember. Don't try to be the prettiest person because just there's going to be someone else comes along and displace you. Rather, instead of looking at the things on earth, let's set our affection on the things above. Let's look to heaven that doesn't change, that's eternal. And so whether you're young or whether you're not so young, whether you know some of the answers to the impossible quiz or whether you got none of them right, kind of proves the point. Let's set our thoughts on things that really count. Let's set our mind on things that really matter, that will make a real difference, a lasting difference. And uh, that has to be the things of God. We're going to go and listen to the Melvin sing another song, right? See you soon. Just
I hope you and your families are all safe and well during these very strange and difficult times with uh, the virus around us. Uh, as an organisation, we wanted to bring you a little update on uh, some of the work that we're doing and continue to do as a result of this virus. And we hope it will be helpful to hear some news of what's going on across in Asia. Our work continues uh, in Asia despite the virus. Uh, we continue each month to support evangelists, print Bibles, and especially with the virus and the practical needs to try and help people as best we can. One of the areas that we're helping people is in India. They've been on lockdown for the last two months. Many people that we're working with are desperately poor, but now, because of the virus, they've lost their jobs and are facing starvation. So our partners are providing rice and lentils and vegetables, and delivering them to those that are most needy. They're also helping pastors and churches uh, provide food and some sustenance for people there. In Delhi, in the northern part and the northern parts of India, our, our teams are involved in trying to meet the great needs that are there. One of the ways they do that is to provide face masks for people. Many people can't get the hold of those and uh, the teams and the churches are making those face masks and then delivering them along with food and rice and blankets. There are great needs in India. People are in desperate need and uh, we would value your prayers and your support as we think about the country of India. The situation in Pakistan is also a very difficult one, especially at the minute. Our partners continue to share the gospel and try to bring practical help to the people there. They told us the story quite recently about a man that they met called Shan. He was a daily labourer. He was earning maybe a pound or so, uh, maybe in a day. But since the lockdown and the crisis, he's lost his job and has no income whatsoever. Uh, this led the man to begin to be in real difficulty. He had no food, nothing which to feed his family, his wife and his two children. And he began to get incredibly hungry and the family were beginning to starve. 
there were some government organizations that were distributing some aid to people, but because he was a Christian, he couldn't get that help from the government organizations. So he just began to pray. A couple of days later, one of our partners knocked on the door and brought him a bag of food, some rice, some lentils, some vegetables, and Shan was filled with joy. He began to cry, began to praise God that God had provided this need. So your help, your practical help, has a huge impact upon lives like that in Pakistan. Please continue to pray for Pakistan, especially at this time of crisis. We're also helping in the country of Myanmar, um, distributing Bibles, and we've been able to do that over the last number of months despite the virus. Um, our partner there uh, has told us a story about a lady called Mrs. Wynn. Uh, she was from a Buddhist background, a very strong Buddhist, uh, brought up in that tradition for many years. And Mrs. Wynn ran an orphanage, and that orphanage had many children in it. And part of what they did was to teach the, 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 the values and the teaching of the Buddha. Uh, just a number of months ago, our partner arrived at the orphanage and gave Mrs. Wynn a little green book, a copy of the Bible. Uh, she didn't really like it. She saw the Bible and she set it on her desk, but she had no real interest in reading it until a number of months passed when she picked the book up and she began to read it. And as she began to read it, she was really interested, really engaged in what she was reading. She began to read the Bible uh, for days on end and eventually came to the conclusion that this book was true, that this God was the only true, living, powerful God, not like the idols that she had been following all of her life. She called on her, the pastor, the partner that we work with, and he shared the gospel with her about how she was a sinner and uh, how Jesus had died on the cross. And Mrs. Wynne gave her life to the Lord. Her life was transformed. And she wanted to then change the ethos of the orphanage. She wanted to change it from teaching about the Buddha to, to teach them about the Bible and, and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And as she did that, the monks were not very happy. They became very angry. In fact, they tried to kick her out of the district and uh, remove her altogether. But she's remained very strong over the last number of months. Um, we've been able to get Bibles to all of the children uh, in the orphanage, and she's just received an, a number of other boxes of Bibles to distribute around the area. So I want to thank you for your prayers, and for those of you who support our work, especially in getting Bibles into the hands of people, your prayers and your support are really making a difference. So thank you for your interest. Uh, this is just a little update. We hope it's helpful and we hope you'll continue to pray for the work of Asia Link and reaching the gospel during these difficult times. Thank you. Thank you, Gordon, for that update. It's a powerful reminder that even in a time of crisis like this, uh, we can sometimes have a view of the world that becomes very narrow. Um, we really just start to think about what impacts us and we think in terms of well, what about me? What about the immediate kind of sphere that I'm in? And we start to think that everything else feels just a wee bit more distant. It's outside our bubble. It's not just something that feels as important anymore. And so I've put that in, in the message this morning because I think it's important to have a moment to think about how God is working in the bigger picture. That God is working across the globe 
even today, even through the middle of a crisis. He is still sovereign. He is still at work. This morning is our penultimate study in what God's will is for our lives. And we're going to be talking about something that probably will make some people switch off and will maybe hook others in. So let me just build it up for a wee minute first before you make your decision. You all know I'm a Balamina man. I haven't lived there for a while, but you can take the boy out of Balamina. You can't take the Balamina out of the boy. Hey. And for all the jokes about the place, you know what, most of them are fairly accurate. Okay, they're exaggerated, but, you know, if you throw a pound under a bus, chances are someone's going to die by going in after it. Why? Because, Balmain, we love a bargain. We, we all love a bargain. Some, maybe in the town of God, we were carried away about a bargain. My Granny Kennedy would be the prime example. She'd see cat food in order, maybe uh, an offer, two for one maybe, on the cans of cat food. She'd go buy ten cans because, hey, that's a great bargain. Never owned a cat in her life. I don't think she ever really grasped the fact that it wasn't as good a deal as she thought it was then. But, you know, we're coming to First Peter again this morning, and Peter is moving his conversation uh, onto a huge reality of the gospel deal. In return for living out a life that points to Christ, there's still going to be hardship. It's not the point of the gospel deal, but it's a reality of signing up to it. That doing this Christian thing isn't going to guarantee your life is easier. In fact, the terms of the deal are this. It's just better to suffer for something that's good than for something that's bad. You want a bargain where Jesus comes in and makes everything easy. But the deal is that suffering is still part of our experience. It's still part of our life. And so I think the question to ask is, this suffering that I'm going through, is this part of God's will? Is it an accident? Is it an unintended consequence? Or is it purposed by God for us to suffer? And Peter comes in and says, well, part of God's plan is to show the difference that he makes in our lives. He reveals the strength and the power and the goodness and the tenderness and sweetness, even in the times when we are exposed, even when we are hurt. That speaks volumes about who Christ is in us and the supreme value that he holds in our lives as ultimate treasure. And Peter's message is that even though this doesn't feel like a bargain, it's a good deal. But we need to understand the, the, understand the terms of the deal. In Acts 14, it's central to Paul's message as he goes around the churches on his missionary journeys. It says that they went strengthening and discipling, uh, uh, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. It is necessary. It is vital. We must go through the hardships to enter the kingdom. Jesus went on to say to his disciples, expect to suffer. It comes up a couple of times, but it's really concisely put in John 15, verse 20. He says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they'll persecute you also. He told his followers to deny themselves, to pick up their cross and to follow him. And for some people, a wee bit like my granny, they don't quite see the deal for what it really is. What they think they're getting isn't really the deal. Christianity is not about the perks. The New Testament is very clear in this. Yes, heaven's coming, but that's a different dimension to what we're talking about. What Peter is saying is that the central issue isn't whether it is good for us to be Christians. The issue isn't whether it's beneficial or whether we think it's a good deal or not. The central issue that Peter is trying to raise here is that this is true. That Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And we believe it and we're convinced to it and are fully persuaded by it. 
the apostles declared the gospel not for riches or fame, but because it was true. They chose poverty and beatings and death rather than deny what they knew to be true. The reason that this is so important to talk about now is because Peter will say in verse 17 of 1 Peter 3, suffering could well be part of God's will for your life. It could be part of the deal. And so often in church services, we present Jesus kind of like snake oil salesman. What's wrong with you? Jesus will fix it. You need a boyfriend? Jesus will get you a boyfriend. You need help? You feel sad? Jesus will cheer you up. You want good hair? Jesus can do that for you. Whatever you need, Jesus can do it. And we sell these promises of some Christian life that's free from suffering and free from worry because, hey, God wants you to be happy and prosperous. So people say, well, okay, yes, sign me up for that, definitely. Label me a sinner, just call me whatever you want. Give me this life. Give me the spouse, the job, the holidays. And it's not like people think that they're going to be millionaires, or at least the majority of people don't think that they're going to be millionaires. But they do buy into this idea of being free from worry in life. As long as I'm enough to ha- have enough to be comfortable. As long as I have enough to be stable. But then they lose their job. Or they lose their health. And then they get angry at God for breaking his promises. And they walk away when really it was the church to blame for misselling the terms of the deal. We sold them a lie. Because we'd rather be popular than honest. Grace, yes, it's freely given, but it costs God his son and it will cost you in following him. And we spoke about this in the second message of this series, Romans 12. We're called to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. There is a cost. So why follow Jesus? Because it's true. We take a stand because it's true. And that is the anchor that we ultimately hold on to. That's the deal. Remember, the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. The heart tells me that it's supposed to be emotional. It should be something that we feel and it stirs us. But it's also something that we should do from our minds. It's an intellectual thing as well. We can't just be going around chasing warm, fuzzy feelings and goosebumps because they can be fake. We need an anchor for our hearts so that we know uh, we need an anchor in what we know to be true and consistent. Someone said that we must guard our hearts with our mind not our minds with our heart. I think that's brilliant. I'll say it again. We are to guard our hearts with our mind, not our minds with our heart. Don't let how you feel in a bad moment dictate then what you decide to believe about God and contradict what you actually know intellectually that God says about himself. Our faith will not hold up if it's based on how we feel about God in a moment. It has to be anchored in truth that helps us process those experiences and process those feelings. So let's get the text in front of us. Let's hear what God himself would say on the matter. I was going to start verse 8, but actually, you know what? Let's drop down to 1 Peter 3, 13 instead. And really those verses that we're skipping, the call is, look, church, we've got to get it together. We have to come as one, be a force for good, for each other, for the world who is watching. We can't be holding each other down, slabbering about each other behind their backs. Love the people who you meet with and be a united force for good. Verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, 
Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. What I love about Peter's argument here is that he's still very much the fisherman who's just preaching the gospel. He doesn't even pretend to be a theologian or that he is the understanding of Paul and some of these other guys. He never tries to say, look, here is why we suffer. He just says, look, the reality is the world's broken. We're going to have hard patches along the way. So we're all going to face suffering in some form. Good people, bad people, and everyone else living in the space in between. Peter's point in this text is, you can come through it if we anchor ourselves in the truth about God's sovereign will. And so Peter, against the backdrop of religious persecution in the Roman world, says, look, live out good lives. And this can restrain the hand of evil against you. Someone who is aggressively atheistic, anti-Christian, and they're living beside you, but sees you as someone who'll do anything for them, as someone who gives generously and is consistent with what you claim to believe. No one's promising that they'll be your best friend or that they'll change their mind. But you're less likely to have an attack on your faith. Maybe a good-natured ribbing that could lead to a respectful conversation. Why? How? Because your lifestyle disarms them. Who can hate someone who's bringing love and joy wherever they go all the time? So Peter says, be zealous for good. Pursue goodness with an intensity and a purpose and an enthusiasm. And it's interesting that Peter uses this adjective because, of course, the Zealots were a political party at the time of Christ. They were militant. They were radical. Simon, one of Peter's co-apostles, was a Zealot. So if we're going to be radical, well, let's be radically good. Let people see that Christianity is not a series of rules and regulations of do's and don'ts, but it is a heart that is conforming to the likeness and image of our Saviour. That our heart is his heart. That our desires are his. So instead of someone uh, seeing a rule book, uh, let them see how we care for the poor and, and the widow, like God who has compassion on them. Or for the outsider, the foreigner, the voiceless, whoever it happens to be. They, they see our marriages, they see our parenting and they see God in us. And they see that he is kind. They see that he is compassionate, that he is caring and that he is good. And that's what he does in those who follow him. They may not agree with our theology or our politics, but they will see the fruit that that life in us produces and they will see the goodness of it. And being zealous in it moves us towards goodness and it moves us away from sin. Rules and regulations may artificially achieve it, but the spirit will do it naturally, inwardly in us. And people can see the difference. God can see the difference. So pursue God goodness with zeal. And that will raise eyebrows, right? Goodness, not just for some, but for all. Not for the people who are in your tribe, in your group, that think like you, that look like you, that act like you. But for all. Respect for all. Love for all. Compassion for all. Justice for all. And Peter goes on to say as much because when that happens, he writes that we should, verse 15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. But do it with gentleness and respect. People will see hope. I wonder if people see hope when they look at your life. 
whether it's hope in the face of ridicule, hope in the face of grief, hope in the face of popular opinion, hope in the face of aggression. And it would seem that Peter says it's one thing for us to know that it's God's will, but it is possible that those who are laughing at us because of our faith will ask about why we do the things we do. Look, why the hope? And yet this is the same hope and the sovereign truth that God well, that, that, that will freeze us to share the truth of God. Fear of man what will keep us quiet, but a love of God will open our mouth. And it's not that we speak with arrogance or, or harshness, but gentleness and respect. So you could be suffering because it's part of God's will. Yeah. That, that could be because when people see the hope that endures in you, that will open doors that a life of comfort and prosperity never could open. You'll have conversations that you would never be able to have before. Paul says in Romans that we won't overcome evil with evil, but we're to overcome evil with good. How much more so when that good is leading people out of sin and towards saving faith? Even the atheist, even the one who is so anti-church, anti-Christian, anti-Christ. Peter, in the last chapters uh, in chapter two spoke of how christians should live as citizens as, as employees at the start of chapter three it's about how we live as spouses now he's talking about how we should live alongside those who are oppressed and the answer is the same every single time every single time gentleness and it's not easy peter knew this all too well remember the night that jesus was betrayed peter had been confronted he denied any knowledge or association with jesus then in Acts 4, he's arrested. This time he is literally on trial and it's the same men who crucified Jesus. And they're demanding a reason from Peter for the hope that is in him. But this time he doesn't stay silent. Let's pick up Acts 4, 10. It says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which had become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Now, a lot of preachers stop there at that verse, but check out the next verse, verse 13, because this is the point that Peter is trying to make now in his letter. He was there, this was him speaking, and here is where he draws out in his letter in 1 Peter. Because... Uh, Listen to how he, he records their reaction. Verse 13 says, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognised that they had been with Jesus. Oh, how I wish that I could speak in such a way that people can see past my weaknesses and recognise that I have spent time with the real, true, living Jesus. And that they would be astonished. Let's go back to 1 Peter 3. Let's bring verse 14 and 17 together. Because it would read like this. Verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake. In other words if hardship comes because you've been reflecting the goodness of God. You'll be blessed. What a promise that is. So have no fear of them. Nor be troubled. Verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good. If that should be God's will. Than for doing evil. In other words. Living out a good Christian life is not a guarantee of a life free of suffering. It may protect us from some unnecessary hardship. It may even point people to Christ. 
But remember, Christ himself went around healing diseases and raising people from the dead and people still wanted to kill him. Being good is not an immunity to suffering. So Peter says, look, if suffering comes your way, it will bring blessing with it. In fact, chapter 5, Peter will expand on what that blessing will be like. In verse 10, he says, After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so there's this perspective here in Peter's writing. And it's really anchored for something. This is the will of God. This is huge to understanding why people suffer. It's one that often the snake oil salesman will keep quiet on. There is a doctrine of suffering. It's part of the deal. Yet some will preach the opposite. They will say that Christians are to have good, blessed lives and it's all there to be named and claimed, blabbed and grabbed. Peter says, listen, even in doing good, it could be God's will to take you down a road marked with suffering. To say it doesn't just goes against most of the New Testament and it kills the mission of the church. The church is to go into all the world and make disciples. But if we're telling people that God's will for them is to be rich and comfortable, well, why become a pastor? Why go out of your way if that's going to cost you that money and that comfort? Why go be a missionary in some tri- to some tribal people in Papua New Guinea? The prosperity gospel says that you have to expect and demand wealth and comfort now. This is God's will, but it's not God's will. God may provide enough income for you to be stable. Praise him for that. But it is given to us to use for his glory, not to store up in some bank account. If we simply say comfort is the goal, mission ends. Because the thought of denying myself, picking up my cross and following him to a place that I will earn less will make no sense. It's going to have no appeal. There are... 13,000 people groups in the world, roughly. Of them, just over 1,500 still don't have any missionaries engaging in them. And therefore, everybody in those groups are without hope. Every one of them. Most of those 1,500 people groups are in dangerous places. Meaning, if you go there, your kids could get diseases and die. Your wife could be captured and raped. Your family could be butchered and killed. So who's going to go? We have to go. Jesus said, go make disciples of every people group, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It's not just the easy ones, not just the ones that are going to provide a comfortable lifestyle. So who's going to go? The product of prosperity preachers, of snake oil sellers? I don't think so. We have to accept the terms of the deal. Suffering is a realistic expectation. Remember, Acts 14, we must go through many hardships. To enter the kingdom of God. Now if you're not close to him. This makes no sense. This deal will make no sense to you intellectually. And so your heart will run from it. Because if you don't know the truth. that you will, you'll, you'll have no anger for when the trials come. And the truth is. This is really what separates the men from the boys. From the mature believers. From, to the immature. Even the sheep from the goats. And look, in this world of frenzied underlining of Bible verses and God's promises, of naming it and claiming it, I wonder how many people have these verses underlined as promises of God. Why not turn now and underline 2 Timothy 3 that says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Promise. 
Or what about the promise in Matthew 10, 22? And Jesus says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Those are Bible promises too. You willing to name and claim those? Jesus himself said, not all men will speak well of you. Not everyone's going to be your friend. The blessings of scripture promise that, that, that the blessings that scripture promise do not come from avoiding suffering, but by embracing God's plan for us. That's where the blessing is, in the center of his will. And look, listen, it would be wrong for you to walk away from this thinking that every time you suffer, it's God's plan. Sometimes it's because of sin. It could just be that you're a jerk, you're an idiot. And you're choosing to go out of your way and hurt people. It could be that this hope that you have in you, you're not sharing it with the gentleness that's required. And instead, you're, you're speaking in a way that comes across as harsh and cruel. That's not being zealous for good. That's not pursuing it with enthusiasm and rigor. But there is blessing even in these times. For we can suffer for doing what is right, knowing and trusting that God has, that this is his sovereign plan for us. Or we can suffer when we are in the wrong. And even in those moments of failure and sin, we realize that it is the Lord's discipline that leads us towards repentance. So suffering can come for the Christian for righteousness sake or for sin. And I argue this morning that both are good for you because the first is God doing something awesome in your life that requires a tough road for this time. And the other is the tender correction of a loving father who loves you too much to ignore your disobedience and wants to get you back on the road that he has planned for you. Which means that as a Christian, I can say with confidence that suffering is part of God's plan for your lives. It's never meaningless. It's never random. It's never without purpose. All of it is for your good and for his glory. And so let's read it again. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy. Literally, Paul's saying, so don't be afraid of your fear. Or, or don't lose sleep over the things that people say. Don't lose sleep over the things that people might be thinking about you. It's tough, but if it is because that you have represented God well that day, you can sleep at peace. And it's not just Peter who says this. Remember Jesus in the Beatitudes? Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul said to the Corinthians, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. James said in the opening verses of his letter, to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What a promise is that, that I, when I go through trials, I will lack nothing that I need to get through. I will come through with God's help. 
John introduces himself in Revelation 1 as our companion in suffering. So folks, Jesus and every other major contributor of the New Testament writings, Paul, Peter, James, John, uh, all say, look, Acts 14 as well, remember, says suffering is part of the deal, even if you live a good Christian life. So how do we endure these times though? Peter says, sanctify him. Or in the ASV, honour Christ the Lord is holy. The first thing we have to do, long before the suffering comes, it's too late almost to try and start then, but for now, beforehand, folks, we understand that God is holy, that he is distinctive, that he is set apart, that he is above everything, that nothing can even come close to who he is. And what happens then is, among many other things, is that when we suffer, the truth that anchors us is how he is sovereign over all. He is wiser than we are. He is more just than we are. He is more loving than we are. And so what happens is we trust him in this time of suffering. We have sanctified him because we know he is sovereign over it all. And this is a truth that we cling to, that we need to sing about and memorize and repeat to ourselves often and confidently. What harm can they do if God is blessing us? What lasting thing can they take from us if God is blessing us? None. What can they do that God hasn't already said yes to or allowed or permitted in the king of, in throne room of heaven? None. So Peter says, look, what's the worst that can happen? Really? Literally, the worst thing that can happen is they kill us. We get ushered into the presence of our loving saviour. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So what can man do to me? What's the worst that can happen? That I get to go to heaven? That's not loss. That's gain. Paul said, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing him, of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Even if we feel we're being unfairly targeted or if we're being unfairly targeted, uh, the, the butt of the jokes, whatever happens to be. He is bigger. He is greater. He is wiser. And so we trust him. He is sanctified in our hearts. And we hope that he is doing something through us, even in those moments. I wonder what would happen to you if you believed this totally this morning. How would you speak differently? How would you live if you truly were no longer afraid of what people thought about you? Because the worst case scenario cannot even happen, which is to be separated from the love of God. What a church we would be. What an impact it would make. Fearless, bold and zealous to do good. If you are going through a hard time at the moment, I want to pray for you now. And I want you to know that feel free to reach out to myself, the elders. We'd love to just spend time praying with you, to be an ear for you if we can help. But repeat this over and over and over to yourself. That the sovereign God who loves you enough to give his son to die for you is still in control in this moment. And he is using you to show the world how great he is. That we can endure. That these temporary things do not shake the eternal hope that is in us.
So sanctify him this morning in your hearts. Praise him this morning in your homes. And raise up a hallelujah that he is still Lord. Let's pray. Father, my prayer for anyone listening to this this morning would be that they would know the supremacy of you. Lord, that they would know your sovereign authority. Lord, that they would know the power of your righteousness. Lord, that they would know the power of your goodness. Lord, that they would know your strength and enabling at this time. Lord, that even in the stillness and the quietness of this prayer, Lord, I pray that you would draw near and whisper into their hearts. Do not be afraid. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Trust me on this road. Trust me in this moment. And so, Lord, whether it is a path of suffering in terms of sickness, of suffering in terms of being targeted because of your faith whenever we speak up, Lord, whatever it happens to be, may we be faithful. And Lord, we pray that you would be honoured in our lives, you'd be honoured in our trusting of you in these storms. And we ask this in your precious name. Amen. We're going to have just one last song now from the Melvins. Thank you so much to them for, for putting these songs together. And uh, we're going to hand over to them now.
Raised with him to endless life.